It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. We got a good one for you today. This is your host, Brian Preston. And um, let me let me go ahead and read you this, this huge title that we put on the top of this one. It says, DCA may be the most important investment decision you'll ever make. Now, what is DCA? And DCA is something we've all talked about, we've heard about, um, but in light of what has happened in 2008 and the first two months of 2009, a lot of people probably quit practicing DCA because they got scared. So DCA, probably a lot of you already know, is dollar cost averaging. What we're going to be talking about is, you know, should you put this thing on autopilot and not try to figure out the ups and downs of what's coming your way? And what, how did we get into this? Is that once again, we get topics not, you know, a lot of times you guys are inspire us by writing me emails, and you can continue to do that by writing me at brian, B-R-I-A-N, at money-guy.com. You can also go check out our show notes at money-guy.com. But uh, like I said, we typically get inspired by not only your emails, but we also get inspired by just what's going on in our life. And you would have to live under a rock to really not notice how much the stock market has made back in the last few weeks to a month and a half. I mean, it, it really is amazing because we were we were down significantly through January and February of 2009, and then we've made back all of that. Um, we're kind of teetering right on the brink of, of that 8,500 for the Dow Jones. And it, it, it's one of those things where you're asking yourself, is this real? Uh, are we truly in a recovery mode, or is this just one of those sucker rallies where – it's up, you know, the percentage it's up, and now it's going to quickly fall back to right back to that 6,500 level, and you're going to be sick because you didn't know what to do with yourself. And, and so we're all facing these same decisions right now, trying to figure out if this is truly a recovery or if this is just some false hope that's sitting out there. Um, I still have some concerns, and I'll go ahead and share that with you. I mean, I'm hoping we're in recovery, but I just don't know. And the reason I don't know is because I do have the following concerns is commercial real estate. Uh, commercial real estate is one of those things where, you know, residential real estate has probably bottomed out to a large degree because we have now we have and we've had a problem for a while with inventory. It's not necessarily that um, you couldn't build a house. Uh, let me let me back up. When I say when I'm talking about inventory, the problem is is that we have more houses on the market that can be sold, and that's resulted in the prices going down significantly. And and what what that means to me is long term, once we clean up that inventory and get rid of the inventory, housing prices will start to go back up. Uh, it's just there's no way because what's going to ultimately control the value of housing is how much it costs to build that house. And nobody can build houses for as cheap as you can buy them right now. So that's why I say we have an inventory problem. But that's on the residential side. I still think commercial real estate is going to be the next shoe to drop on, on the real estate side of things. Because you can't ride around. I know in my own personal community down here on the south side of Atlanta, you go through shopping centers and there's a lot of empty strip shopping centers, a lot of empty office buildings. Um, we're, we're not immune from that, even in the building that I'm in currently. So I, I really do worry about the commercial real estate side impacting real estate and then kind of having a ripple effect that kind of flows through the entire economy. Second, uh, there's a second wave of home foreclosures. Uh, you know, John Hussman, I go out and read his commentary. Uh, if you go to HussmanFunds.com, every Monday he comes out with some new commentary. 
He says we haven't seen the, the seen the worst yet. And I'll, I'll tell you, I just saw on Yahoo this morning, or it was either Yahoo or Drudge Report, um, there was a realty track announcement that foreclosures were up. So we, we we are still seeing some signs that you know there's some bad things going on. But remember, some of this stuff, just like your jobs indicator, your employment indicator is going to be one of those trailing indicators that comes at the end. You're not, you could be in a recovery and unemployment still could be going up just because people aren't going to start hiring until they feel like we're truly in a recovery mode. It's hard to kind of come off the pocketbook to hire people when you're still worried about your own personal finances. And I think that's the same thing. Foreclosures, I think that's going to be a trailing indicator, but still it's, it's, it's somewhat concerning when you see that that number is increasing. Also, credit card defaults. You know, you're seeing a great deal of credit card defaults. Credit card companies are raising interest rates, and now we've got the new administration is threatening um, to kind of curb some of those practices. And I, I do agree that the credit card companies, you know, have a lot of enemies, rightfully so, to a large degree, because they put due dates on holidays and other crazy schemes. But um, there's a part of me, a small, small part of me that does feel for them because um, they're probably getting hammered by their own mistakes they made during this credit crisis. They gave credit to anybody and everybody who had a pulse, and now they're paying the price. And um, I think that way of doing business is probably gone. And probably, this is the only thing that concerns me long term on the economy, is that so much of our economic growth in the past was driven by consumer spending. And if we're curbing those practices, bringing simple back, as I've talked about in the past, we, we could be seeing some problems there with our growth rates might not be as big as they've been in the past because we're not going to have credit driving it through credit cards and everything else um, that's out there. So credit card companies are kind of getting a taste of some of that that that, that bad medicine that because of some of their practices, and now they've, they've even been threatened that the current administration is going to come in and curb some of those practices even more. So if you own a bank, be concerned that it um, might be a little bit longer before you see full recovery there. And then fourth, uh, I'm worried because it seemed like during the month of March, the government was coming out with a new program about every other day where they were doing, doil, doiling out billions and trillions of dollars. Well, truly billions, but you add the billions together, we start getting into trillions. And I'm worried what happens when the government stops sending out the money. Um, can, can the financial institutions, you know, sustain themselves uh, without the training wheels? Can um, the auto industry, are they going to ever get back on their feet? There, there's a lot of ifs out there about what's going to happen when we don't have all these spending programs. Now, the good news is there's a lot of money that's still going to be released in 2010. Um, that's actually the majority of the money is going to be in 2010. But it does make you wonder, is, you know, what are we going to do? Is this all kind of a false sense of security? So there lies the problem. We've had a, a nice run-up in the market, but we still don't know if we're truly in a recovery, or if this is, like I said earlier, a false rally. Some people call them sucker rallies, where you think that you're in a recovery, and then all of a sudden somebody sucker punches you, and you know, and you're right back to 6,500. So, how do you how do you protect yourself? And and I got to tell you, what I have noticed is that the real answer is is to try not to figure this out at all. Is that you know it, it, it sounds so simple, but it is so true. Is that you just need to to be buying monthly. Um, I will tell you that I got somewhat excited when I went and pulled up my own account statements and saw those shares that I bought back in, you know, September, October, November, and then the January and February shares. 
it was incredible. I mean, those, those, those purchases are up significantly because I do practice what I preach and I do dollar cost average by going in and investing monthly. And I do that in my retirement accounts as well as in a joint account that, that me, and, me and my wife have. We have a portion going into savings and then we have a portion that buys into a, um, a growth mutual fund that, that I'm hoping down the road will, will just, you know, be worth incredibly more than it is right now. And I think that's what we all have to hope for. So the, the answer is really simple about this, is how do, you, how do you protect yourself over the long term? And the answer really is it, today, tomorrow, yesterday, it was always the same answer is it's probably best if you dollar cost average. And I went and looked up because a lot of you, even though I've, I've given you a lot of you credit for knowing what dollar cost averaging is, I went and looked up the definition on Investopedia. And Investopedia defines dollar cost averaging as a technique of buying a fixed dollar amount of a particular investment on a regular schedule, regardless of the share price. More shares are purchased when prices are low, and fewer shares are bought when prices are high. So I know that sounds really simple, but it really can lead to that success because you've all heard the adage that you need to pay yourself first, and that's exactly what dollar cost averaging does, is it's allowing you to purchase and buy for your, you know, pay yourself first. Um, because if you're like most people, including myself, if you have money in your pocket, you spend it. I mean, that, that's, that's where, you know, I know there's the whole adage that if you use credit cards, the studies show that you spend a lot more than you do with cash. Well, that, that probably is true. I, I mean, I haven't actually gone and pulled that research, but I will tell you, Brian Preston, personality-wise, if I have extra cash in my pocket, I'm more inclined to go to Smoothie King. I'm more inclined to go um, to to the fast food joint, Chick-fil-A, on the way home and get a, a milkshake or something like that. Um, I, I, that's just my personality. I'm probably less likely to spend on the credit card um, with those little purchases than I am with cash. For some reason, cash seems very liquid to me, and, and that's my own probably personality trait. So if you catch me, I'm always worried if I ever get mugged or something like that. I'm probably just going to get taken out completely. Um, because I, I usually know, never have more than 10 to $15 on me at any time. I just, I'm not a cash person. So um, don't, don't read anything into that. I don't want to get the, the old debt is evil and all the other stuff, but just know that personally that, that's my own issue that I face with is I just don't keep cash on me. Um, but let, let's go on a little deeper in this is that I want you guys to also know dollar cost averaging is not just a young man's game or a young person's game. This is something that can benefit a 21-year-old, but it can also benefit a 51-year-old. It's anybody who has, you know, at least a decade before they retire, you're going to see that buying monthly is actually going to be very beneficial to you. So let's, let's look at, you know, a 51-year-old a who's 5 to 10 years away from retirement cannot possibly have the same investment strategy of a 21-year-old. And, that, and that's completely true. So I don't want you to think I'm equating a 21 and a 51-year-old as equal on what their needs are, but that, that's dealing with asset allocation. They're going to have completely different asset allocations, and you can go check out, you know, when we get this premium section, you can sense, can you sense the, the weight in my voice that I'm getting tired of this thing not being up? Um, we've, we've had more and more technical problems just because now it's because Internet Explorer is a little different than the Firefox, Mozilla, and some of the security protocols are a little different. It is just, this thing is driving me crazy. But under the mem premium member section, we are going to have an asset allocation tool to help you 
figure that out and figure out what type of asset you know you need to have based upon your goals how how long before you retire but that's what's different between a 21 and a, and a 21 and a 51 year old is their asset allocation and how they should diversify their investments they're still they can benefit from dollar cost averaging it does not you know change between your age um because you both are going to need to be accumulating more and more money, and you're both going to be making more money. If the market goes down, you're buying more shares. If the market goes up, the shares you bought a month ago or two months ago are going to be worth more. It is a way to hedge your bet and kind of protect yourself on both ways. So let's step back and look at it a little differently also, is that even though this does not this apply, does apply to young people too, for the next minute or so, think specifically that I'm speaking of those people who are over age 40. If you think about the your entire financial pizza pie, and that's your asset allocation I've already talked about, different slices should represent different stages of your of your life. One slice, uh, slice, one slice should represent the right now portion, which is your cash, and that's that money that you're going to need really over the next, you know, one to three years for sure. But you even, if you're a very conservative person, and I, and I don't think this is a bad idea anymore, is that you need to be thinking that anything less than five years, you need to keep somewhat liquid, either in cash or in short-term bonds, something that you can definitely redeem and, and get that money out. The other portion should be for five to ten years, which can be your fixed income slice of that pizza pie. And then anything over ten years, ten to twenty years away, you can feel really comfortable with putting that into equities. And assuming you have 20 years to retire, you know, a large portion of that money should be allowed to grow. Now, let's address those people who are under 40. I know there's a good deal of, of you out there listening because you are the, the, the technology people. Of course, I've got my early adopters um, who are on the you know older, but they still doing uh, the the podcasting thing? I hear emails from those guys all the time. But there are a lot of young people out there listening. And first of all, I get so frustrated when I hear about people who are young, but they quit investing on a monthly basis in their retirement plans because the market's down. What are you doing? Come on, first of all, you're young. There's no reason you shouldn't be socking away as much money right now as you can and enjoy the retirement lifestyle that you've been dreaming of. This is why. I know when I first graduated college and I started saving money, I looked around me and I started getting concerned that all my friends weren't saving as well. So I went out there and bought the book, The Wealthy Barber, for all of them. And, and, they, and the main thing, when I handed them the book, I said, the reason I'm giving you this book is because when I retire, you know, 55 to 65, whenever I, I think I want to, you know, hang up the reins and decide I'm not going to do this anymore, I need to have friends. Otherwise, what fun is it going to be to have all to have money, have financial independence, if none of you guys can retire too? And, and that's something I think you need to think about is, you know, if you're going to, to save for retirement, look around you and look at your family and friends. And it, obviously, if you're listening to a financial podcast, you're probably on the right path. But look around you and see if you can help some of your friends and family too, because you don't want to be the only one that's got the, the, the marbles and the jacks that you're playing with. You want to make sure that you're your friends can come over and play as well. So if you're under 40, you've got to be saving money. There's just no excuse. And there's research after research that shows that if you start young, it is very, very powerful. Now, I want to I want to pull some research that we've also got out there uh, on the premium section, but I'm going to go ahead and use it right now on, on the podcast today, is that I pulled some numbers on how much money you would have to put in monthly to have a million dollars by the time you're at age 65. Now, if you're a 20-year-old, 
and you want to have a million dollars by the time you're 65, you have 45 years to save money, you only have to put in $363 if you are making 6%. Now, wait a minute, I'm going to get back to why I'm choosing these numbers in a minute. So 6% is $363. 8%, you have to put in $190 a month. You see how that 2% difference makes a huge difference on your savings? Um, and that's, you know, that's a close to 170 bucks a month difference just by making 2% more a year, 6% versus 8%. Now listen to this. This is going to blow your mind. If you're 20 years of age and you can get 11% rate of return annualized to get to a million bucks, you only have to be putting in $67 a month. Now you're saying, Brian, where did those numbers come from, the 6, 8, and 11? What we've done is I've got research on the premium section that we're going to release as soon as this thing goes live that shows different asset allocations. We've got very simplified asset allocations. Uh, the first one, the most conservative, is no stocks, 90% bonds, and 10% cash. And then we've got the most aggressive, which is 90% stocks and 10% cash. And we've got their historical rates of return from 1953 all the way through last year, where the market lost that over 37% on the S&P 500. So we've got a good mix. And then that 8%, it's kind of right in between them if you had a diversified al allocation with adding some bonds and fixed income in there. And what we found is, is that from 1953, January 1953, through December of 2008, through the entire year of 2008 where we had that awful return, you still, during that period of time, would have averaged an annualized rate of return of 6.39% with a 90% bond portfolio and a 10% cash. No stocks whatsoever. So that's where I came up with that 6% for the 20-year-old to save $363. Now, the 11% comes from the guy who's doing the most aggressive. If you, from 1953 to December of 2008, did 90% stocks and 10% cash, you would have averaged 11.01%. And we base that off of, we use the S&P 500 for the, for the stocks portion, we use the 10-year treasury bond for the bonds portion, and we use the three-month T-bill for cash um, when we were doing our calculation. And then you can look at a, a split of 40% stocks, 50% bonds, and 10% cash is average 8.44%. Um, you know, annualized. So you can see those numbers and see that there's a big difference. Obviously, there's a risk reward um, problem there where you have to figure out how much, you know, risk you can take on, but the reward can be there if you have a long enough time horizon. Obviously, saving $67 a month is not that hard to do when you're 20 years of age. Now, let's talk about the people who are 30. If you're 30 years of age and you've got 35 years to save that million dollars, you've got to save at 6%, that very conservative portfolio, you've got to save $702 a month. At 8%, you've got to save $435 a month. And then if you're going to get that, that, that 11% rate of return, you've got to get $203 a month that you're saving on a monthly basis. And also, don't forget, when we talk about dollar cost averaging, we're talking about what your employment plan, too, your retirement plan at work. And what you're not even thinking about is, you know how I'm always picking on you guys, you've got to do the match. Remember, you, I, the way I tell people is get that match. Then you want to make sure you're doing Roth IRAs. Those type of things can all be counted towards this dollar cost averaging. It doesn't have to be just taxable money. I'm talking about your retirement money for sure with your 401ks, your simple IRAs, your 403bs, whatever your employer offers, and you can add you know, their, their match on top of this. That's free money. As I often tell you guys, if you put a, a coffee table outside or say a card table outside your office and your employer came by and once a year he put a sack full of money there and said, 
thank you for your good work. Here's your free bag of money. None of you would walk out of your office at the end of the day and not pick up that sack of gold coin or cash, whatever your boss put out for you. But a lot of us are doing that every year by not participating in our employment retirement plan. Now that's the 30, that's the 20 year old, the 30 year old. If we waited, let's talk about a 40 year old. This is where you can see time is not your friend. Um, you're starting to run out of some issues there. That's why it's a young man's game with this compounding interest if you can start it young enough. But there's not a bad time to start, but I'm just telling you it gets harder. When you're 40 years of age, you've got 25 years to retire. If you go with the most conservative portfolio that gets 6%, you would have to put in every month $1,443 a month. That, that moderate portfolio, you'd have to put in $1,052 a month, assuming an 8% rate of return. And then you'd have to still put in $634 a month if you were getting um, that very aggressive 11% rate of return. Um, those numbers, like I said, are historical. That's from 1953 to 2008, taking into account how bad last year was. And, and you can see how incredible... Um, even with a very conservative portfolio, becoming a millionaire is a very attainable goal, especially if you pay yourself first through the exact concepts we're talking about here, which is dollar cost averaging. So um, let's, let's continue to talk on here about the, the accumulation stage, the dollar cost averaging. You know, that's for all people who have at least 10 years until retirement. You're still in the accumulation stage, and you're stocking away those dollars for one day, one day when you leave the workforce and you, you're benefiting you know, from, you know, the money you've saved. And the benefit, as I've already talked about, of dollar cost averaging is that when the market goes up and when the market goes down, you still do okay. Because when the market goes up, the money you've been buying in over the last few years during these dark, dark times where it just seems crazy to be putting any money out there into the investment marketplace, you're going to be rewarded because you kept buying as it was going lower and lower. So now when the market goes down, you can get this little sickness that I get. You know, I buy on the 15th uh, in one account, and then I buy in the 20th, around the 20th, I believe, in another account. And every time around those dates, I kind of look at the stock market in, in this weird, sick way and go, you know, it's okay if the market goes down today because I'm getting in cheap. Now, I know that sounds ridiculous to say, but I know there's probably a few of you who are dollar-cost averaging and know exactly which day of the month that you buy on, and you probably have the exact same issue I do, is where you, you're sitting there going, please, you know, let's, let's make a little bit, get a few extra shares of this mutual fund. And, you know, and, and I know that sounds silly, but it is so true, and that's why there's a win-win situation. When the market goes up, your old shares, your existing shares are going up in value. When the market goes down, you're getting a little bit more of that cheap. You know, I, I heard another investment advisor, and it sounds so simple, but it is so true. He says, we are in the only industry where when things go on sale, People don't get excited. You know, you go to your, your favorite retail store or the outlet store and you find out that a sweater is 25% off. Most people get excited and lose their, lose their minds. They might end up buying two sweaters or three sweaters, even though they only would wear one of them just because it's on sale. But when the, the equity marketplace gets beat up like it did last year, where, you know, you hear the, you hear the people like Warren Buffett and others who say be greedy when other, others are fearful or you hear about blood in the streets is the perfect time to buy. But yet it doesn't work that way. We, for some reason, the human nature is, is that we're miserable creatures that um, we, we, we just don't, there's, there's a lot of emotional pain, there's a psychological pain that comes to us that we don't get the same adrenaline rush and excitement from 
buying equities at a cheap price. And, and I think that probably has to do with is that such a larger portion of our security. You know, our, our financial investments are our security blanket. They are our money that we're going to live off of many years down the road. And, and it just doesn't feel the same as when a sweater goes on sale. But still that concept, if you can take out the emotion, really does ring true. So um, I'm looking through my notes here, see if there's anything else I'm, I'm missing out on. Let's see. Now we've talked about all that. Let's see. Um, let's, let me give you a few guidelines to making this plan work and making it stick and work for you. The first thing is you must have the correct asset allocation. I've already talked about this a little bit on what I'm talking about with the differences of asset allocation. A 65-year-old dollar cost averaging into a penny stock probably isn't going to work. That's a great point. And then number two is you must stick to the plan. As the market crashes and burns around you, it will become increasingly difficult to feel comfortable in your plan. Just remember that you want the market to go down at some point. That is when the benefit of dollar cost averaging is truly experienced. Make it automatic. Don't trust yourself to write a check every month. Pick one day every month and have an automatic transaction take place. After a while, you won't even miss that money and you thought that you thought you couldn't live without. And that's a true point. And then number four is don't go overboard. Start with a low ball amount. If you feel like right now you can save $1,000 a month but aren't sure about your future income stream, Back it down to $800 and then have a periodic catch-up deposit and give yourself a plan to make sure that the plan is something that you can truly stick to. And I, I think those are great points. And I, I want to give a compliment. I think when you go look at the show notes, you go and as well as these podcasts, I've had Bo really help me put the, the content together. And I think he's added some excitement. I really do. I think Bo's doing a good job. With, with keeping the podcast on track. Um, we're trying to get the premium membership section going. Uh, there's a, a number of you that have already signed up, and I apologize that that thing has not gone live and hot. We've got everything uploaded and ready to go. It's just, like I said, we're having these technical problems. I think you can feel the weight in my voice that, that I'm frustrated with this. Uh, I want to close out the show with just um, a, a few quick comments. I, I hope I don't get myself in trouble for this, but but I can't help but say it. Bo's probably going to cringe a little bit because I've been getting some... Um, um, well, let me let me do the good news first. First, I want to thank you guys for the the iTunes reviews that I've gotten recently. It really helps me out. And I appreciate it tremendously. Um, it kind of up, up, uplifts me as I come in here and do the show. But then I've also gotten some really mean emails too. Um, some of them calling me unchristian, ungodly because I said a few comments about Dave Ramsey last week. And I, and I was kind of surprised because I really don't recall. Now, I haven't gone and listened to what I said in the last podcast but I don't think I said anything mean about Dave Ramsey. I'm actually a fan of Dave Ramsey. Don't want to have the big guy dislike me, that's for sure. When I talk about big guy, I'm talking about Dave Ramsey, not God. Um, but Dave has you know, been very successful, and I think his show is very good. I listen to him frequently. I can even remember yesterday I was um, driving to the gym, and, um, and he was talking to somebody who was a masseuse, and he was giving them business ideas on how to, you, know, you determine whether you should rent you know, space from the the the, the chiropractor center or wherever this person worked versus just taking a um, compensation, you know, like a sales associate where she gets a cut off of how many massages she does. And he had some great points talking about variable versus fixed expenses. Any CPA listening in the audience would have been proud of him. But I, I don't understand. I think people who, you know, we all know people We've all worked in large organizations where there's certain people that just make you tired by making bigger things out of 
nothing. They make, you know, mountains out of molehills. And, and that's what I hope you guys, because I've, I've been criticized on a number of shows. Now, I remember when I was doing the, the Uncle Bernie Madoff podcast I did a few months ago. I got a few emails telling me that I, was, that I hated Jewish people. And um, that was kind of shocking to me. Now I'm being told I, I hate Christians because I, I said a few things about Dave Ramsey and, and debt, which really surprised me because I actually teach the, the Crown Ministry class. And, and, and my, I live in the South. Come on, can you really be anti-Christian when you live in the South and you, you go to a Baptist church? But um, that, that's out there. And the same thing about you know, the, the Jewish comments about you know, Bernie Madoff. It just shocks me because I do this show out of passion. I don't make money off this show um, even with the premium section and the people we've had sign up so far, it's just covering the cost of this new consultant we've hired. Um, the equipment, I mean, I, I get excited because, you know, I see uh, when I watch TV and they do they show a, a radio station, and I see that I'm using the same equipment as a lot of the radio stations. That stuff I paid for out of my pocket is a passion because I'm excited about doing the podcast for you guys. Your, your feedback, your emails are what drive me. I have not figured out how economically to benefit from this, aside for some of the clients that have come on throughout the country. And thank you guys for coming on board as clients of Preston and Cleveland. But I just want you to know, um, not trying to upset anybody, but I, am, I don't want to also you know, censor myself too much. Bo has brought a few topics to me this morning. And I said, Bo, I can't do those. And he goes, why can't you do that? I said, because it's going to upset some people. And, you know, and I started thinking to myself, maybe I need to be careful and not you know, censor myself because I, I can't make everybody happy. But I also just want to say, if you're one of those people, if you go about write me a mean email, please think about it and ask yourself, am I being that guy that's, that's, or, or that girl that's draining and making a, a mountain out of a molehill? And is this truly the intention of what Brian was trying to do? Um, maybe, I, I don't know if I'm, taking this too far, but I felt like I would throw that out to you guys just to share it. And I'm sure if you want to write me an email, I'll go ahead and be a glutton for punishment. And you can write me at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at money-guy.com. But I really do appreciate all you guys that listen to the show. Nothing warms my heart more to know that a lot of you are getting a lot of benefit out of this, and I'm helping you build financial independence. That's what my goal is. I want to kind of create a movement. I think there's just so much noise out there in the marketplace. It's nice to actually find a place that you can get good advice that's objective and and hopefully get you in a better place for you and your family. Until then, I'll talk to you in about a week or so with the next podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Brian Preston, for the Money Guy Podcast. The Money Guy Podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. (laughs) 